This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. There are a number, actually, of psychological factors and social factors that push people into believing in things that are not true about health and medicine. And one of the biggest conflicts between how science proceeds and how we think is that science requires constant updating with new information. But we are, our brains are really primed to not let us change our mind. Hello and welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. I'm Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Well, this is another episode from the TED Med conference held recently in La Quinta in California, where some of the world's biggest thinkers in the health and medical fields get together to share their wisdom, their ideas, and hopefully their inspiration. Well, with me today is the author Sarah Gorman. Sarah's first book, Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us, explores the psychology behind irrational health beliefs and decisions. It focuses on a subject that I think we all encounter, at least grapple with every day, and that is, what should we believe? What can we believe when we hear about in quotes, according to new research, a new story might say, well, do we really believe that that's going to help us live a longer, healthier life? Sarah Gorman, welcome to the Lama podcast. Thank you. We all make decisions about our health every day. And even though we are bombarded with information, those decisions, to me at least, seem to get more difficult every day. And, and it is that overriding question, what do we believe? That's a very difficult question, of course, for everyone. And part of the reason it's more complicated to make sense of all of the information on health these days is because there's a lot of information that's proliferated on a lot of different channels. And there isn't much help people get to tell the difference between what's really legitimate and what's not. So people find themselves waiting in a lot of different kinds of information without the training to understand what is valuable and what is not. And is that what prompted you being aware of that scenario? Is that what prompted you to write the book? It's a big part of the factor that that prompted me to write the book. The really big motivation for me was trying to understand actually why people who were quite well educated in the United States especially were not getting their children vaccinated against measles, mumps, and rubella. And I had got into that thinking that it was because they didn't have the right information. And I quickly found that that was not the center of the problem. And so I, I wanted to understand what was, and that's what led me to work on the book. So just to delve a little bit then into that issue, did you at the end of the process understand why? I think I, think I have. And it's a complex problem, and there's no one easy solution. What I've really come to uncover, there are a number, actually, of psychological factors and social factors that push people into believing in in things that are not true about health and medicine. And one of the biggest conflicts between how science proceeds and how we think is that science requires constant updating with new information. But we are our brains are really primed to not let us change our mind. We, we, we form an opinion and then we kind of do everything we can to keep from changing positions. And so it can be very difficult to pivot the way you need to with scientific information. And that's why some of the 
false beliefs. That's part of why some of the false beliefs persist. What is your, we'll talk more about the book in a second, but what is your background? You're obviously a writer, but uh, what was your education? So my writing background, I think, comes largely from my extensive training in the humanities. I actually have a PhD in English literature. And I, in the middle of my PhD in English literature, became very interested in public health, actually, in this question about vaccines and autism specifically, and then more broadly in the field of both domestic and global health. And so I started to do work in the field, and I went on to do a degree in public health after finishing my PhD. And uh, I'm now a public health specialist and really focusing on uh, some of the psychology, the intersection of public health and psychology. So back to the vaccines issue, I'm curious, did you delve into that issue with the preconceived idea that these people choosing not to vaccinate their children were wrong? Yes, absolutely. So coming from a public health and medical uh, background, the co-author on my book, who's also my father, is a physician. And so we were coming at this issue from a public health and medical background. And we we do know that the MMR vaccine is safe and, and does not cause autism. But we kind of took that as, let's just set that aside for a second and try to really understand what is going on when people go down the wrong path. And so it's sometimes difficult, even for us, because we obviously have a position on this and we have the, you know, the, the luxury of understanding the science. But I think what we were able to do was really try to look into the psychology. And it's hard sometimes, but you have to develop as much empathy as you can and try to listen to what people are saying. And did you find yourself towards the end of the process a better listener? I think so. I think one of the things that happens with some of these issues is that they can be incredibly divisive. But part of what we find is that when you look at social media and you look at the internet, you hear very uh, polarized voices at the extremes. In reality, most people are somewhere in the middle in this space in the vaccine world. We call it vaccine hesitant rather than anti-vax because most people are somewhere in the middle there. They're unsure. The really extreme positions are not the majority of people. And oftentimes you really need to work with the people who are who are wavering and not sure. Have you reached any conclusions or, or ideas about how we, as individuals, filter the information that's presented to us? Because we would generally, and I think increasingly these days, we have a sort of scattergun approach. And I think the internet is to blame for that, that mm-hmm. we, we dip into this and we dip into that. And we get a little nugget of information there that might agree with something we saw yesterday, but then it disagrees with something that's right in front of us now. So how do we filter for ourselves? I think that there are a couple of solutions to that problem. And one of the things that is very concerning is that the mode in which we read now is a very distracted mode. So we, like you said, we tend to sort of jump from one thing to the other. And even when we're reading something, since we have so much stimulation with all our devices, we're not really paying as much attention as we can. And part of what we know about that kind of information intake is that you're much more prone to being persuaded by cues that are not really factual, but are really uh, peripheral, like how confident someone seems or how many arguments they make and you don't are you not able to devote as much attention to understanding what the argument is and whether it's strong or not so there are a couple of solutions to this problem i think one thing that has to happen now is that early education needs to be in part about in schools really needs to be in part about how do you know what's true from what's not how do people decide that and how do you uh, navigate the internet because it's just part of the reality and and children need to really learn how to do that 
Um, but the other thing is I've wor- I actually have worked with some um, journalists, medical societies, uh, people who are writing press releases um, to, to, to understand how to structure the information that they're providing with the understanding that people are often not going to read the whole thing and that what they read first is going to be the most influential. So trying to really uh, put up front whatever, there, if there's ambiguity that needs to kind of go up front and not be buried in the piece, um, which is, you ha- and then you have to find a way to make that appealing because, you know, sometimes journalists say, well, no one will click on it if it's not straightforward. Um, so I, I've, I've been trying to work with, with people on how to do that. Uh, this word that we keep on hearing increasingly these days, uh, transparency, mm-hmm. which applies to, to all of us in, in what we do, but, but especially journalists. And academics, I think professors, uh, people behind clinical studies need to be transparent about who's paid for mm-hmm. what they're doing, especially if it's a medical study, it involves drugs, did the drug company that the yeah. study is looking at pay for the actual study? There isn't necessarily anything wrong with that, but it's the fact that we need to know about it. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I talk about a lot is I think we've we've done we've come a long way, especially in the medical world, about the conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical companies. I don't think that that problem is solved, but I think we have come a long way in becoming obviously a lot more transparent and trying to uh, mitigate some of those issues. What we don't deal with as much are, are some of the other kinds of conflicts, some of which are not necessarily even purely financial, that uh, physicians and academics and science face. Um, for example, one of the really uh, one question I get asked a lot is how come, uh, why do doctors keep prescribing or, or doing uh, mammograms when it's been shown that, that those should not be done as often as they think. And part of what happens is that people, doctors, develop reputations around certain points of view and practices. And even if it's not purely a financial reward for continuing that practice, um, they, there's currency in their reputation. And so they're, they have to be taught to be very aware of, of how they're approaching these things and how much that uh, continuing that reputation is influencing their decisions. So it, it involves a lot in terms of education, educating ourselves to, to even see the red flags, because mm-hmm. I think we're so used to, let's say, doctors behaving in, in a certain way. And I think also with a certain, maybe for a certain generation, there's an inbuilt trust of your doctor, perhaps one of the most trustable people in your life. I think traditionally people have thought, well, yes, my doctor He's been with the family a long time. He's the person I can trust. But I think really these days, doctors are included in that list of lawyers and journalists and all those people that society generally doesn't trust, sadly. Yes, there's been a lot of discussion about this, including over the past few days at this conference. And one of the things I always go back to, again, is with the vaccine example. What we do find is that even though overall it seems like trust of doctors is on the decline, 
one of the most, really the most influential factor in whether a parent decides to vaccinate their child is if they do have a trusting relationship with a provider and the provider really recommends the vaccine, they will do it almost 100% of the time. Part of the issue that we're facing, uh, you know, definitely in the U.S., given our healthcare system, is that doctors are squeezed more and more for time. And they don't have, and, and people are not seeing the same person over and over, and they don't have that relationship. And that really makes it difficult for that trust to form. It makes it difficult to have an open conversation when someone is vaccine hesitant. And so that's where people start to go to other sources to get their information and start to distrust the doctor. To what extent do we all need to become fact checkers ourselves? It's a daunting prospect, I think, especially for those of us or for those people who are are not journalists, who are not scientists, who are not used to researching something and and, and otherwise simply accepting what they're given. But I I get this sense that we all need to have a level of of fact checking in how we get our information. I absolutely think that's incredibly important. And even though it does seem daunting, I agree that that if you're really going to do it right, um, it's a big process. But there are a couple of small things people can do. And I do actually have a section in my book about red flags when you're looking at a website. Uh, What are some things that should tip you off that you might be looking at something illegitimate? But there are a couple of also interesting studies that, that have been done about looking at people reading online sources and who is able to, what what the people do who are able to tell that something's fake or illegitimate. And there's a couple of simple steps they take. Like usually they open a few pages on their web browser and look up the author and they look up the institution the author's from. And they do a couple of things like that that don't have to be an incredibly long period of a very arduous task. Um, but if we can get people into that habit, uh, instead of just moving so quickly through this information, uh, that would be re- very, that would make a big difference, I think. And what are some of the other things that you mention in your book in terms of red flags? What, what sort of things should we look out for? It's it, it was mostly in the context of looking at some of the actually anti-vaccine websites that have popped up. What was very interesting to me is that some of them have very legitimate sounding names, like the Na- I think there was one that said something like the National Institute for Vaccine Safety, which is not really an institute, but it's this website and this organization uh, that is clearly anti-vaccine and uh, one of the so when you go onto that site you might think oh it's the national institute for vaccine safety it must be legitimate it's a national organization but it's really just this actually kind of propagandistic anti-vaccine site so there were very but they were very clear to me and i wrote about this in the book red flags about what's wrong with this site a couple of the major things that you would see would be um a lot of there was a lot, kind of a lack of professionalism in how it was designed. It was extremely uh, flashing lights and blinking different colors and things like that tend to be associated, in my experience, with things that are not as legitimate. Yeah, I, I noticed that a lot yeah. actually. I mean, it's almost like going into a casino. Yeah, in exactly. Las Vegas, it, it, it looks so amateurish. It's often a big tip off. It's not always, but I think that's a pretty good uh, indicator. And then, quick thought on that. Sorry yeah, to interrupt, sure. but uh, the antithesis of that mm-hmm. is the professor or the university city's website which yeah. can look like the most boring of websites right. it, you know, it's, it's a list of information with a white background yes but actually the, the most genuine and i talked about that too um i use the example of the cdc's site on vaccines is also similarly kind of boring um which maybe is a problem in and of itself but it that does tend to be the case with those legitimate websites uh white background text a lot of text very 
few pictures, whereas the other site had a lot of uh, pictures of individual children um, and their stories right on the front page, um, and a, a lot of links to um, studies that when you click through, they wouldn't come up or um, they wouldn't be on a journal's web page. They would be on some someone's blog or something else. So when you kind of start to, you can dig in a little bit deeper and trace some of the links, you find some red flags there as well. Yeah. So I actually interrupted you. You you were expanding on the, the whole red flag mm-hmm. issues. What, what else should we look out for? I think, uh, you know, what I find very commonly on the anti-vaccine websites in particular is uh, a very big focus on individual stories. And uh, if you're looking at something like the National Institute for Vaccine Safety and you're, and you're under the impression that it's some kind of government organization because it's called National Institute, um, but then you see these pictures of individual children and their stories, very long stories, again, written in different color fonts and capital letters randomly. Um, I think you can pretty quickly pick up on the fact that this is a little bit fishy because you would never find something like that on a government website about vaccines. You mentioned uh, you've uh, founded, uh, co-founded an organization to help us make rational decisions ourselves. Tell me about that. Yeah, so the organization is called Critica. Uh, The book my book came out in September of 2016, and so shortly after that, um, in the U.S. with the election and the the use of the term alternative facts and public conversation, uh, people started to ask me, okay, your book really expounds on what are some of the issues, why we don't believe in facts in science and health, but what are some of the solutions to that problem? And so uh, there were a lot of people approaching me with all different kinds of problems from different or- health-related organizations. And so I decided I'm going to, going to set up this organization and we do a couple of things. Uh, we write a lot of commentary about uh, things that come up constantly in the news when there's controversies about uh, different scientific studies or findings that have been overturned and people are confused. Um, we talk about that uh, and, and a whole range of other issues. But we also um, work with organizations that are facing issues around uh, disbelief of medical evidence. So um, pharmacist associations, me- medical associations, that sort of thing. We do professional trainings. Um, and also more broadly around uh, helping any organization that's working on any kind of health behavior change. Uh, that's a, a big piece of what we do as well. Because it is actually very healthy to be skeptical, isn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, absolutely. And we don't want to kind of squash that. And so that's partially why uh, we try to make Critica a very open environment. Uh, We have a lot of people who are very engaged who aren't from the medical and scientific background. Um, Some of them are patients who have experiences or who have had unsettling experiences with a doctor and are feeling kind of confused. And uh, we really value those conversations because uh, Coming from, we understand our limitations coming from public health and medicine as well, um, and we really want to make sure that there are places for people to go to actually talk about these issues and and not have someone just immediately shut down the conversation. And I guess one of the benefits of a, a forum like this is that a lot of, let's say, in the medical field, clinical trials are based on a surprisingly small sample. Of people, you could be talking about just a few dozen people that have taken part in in a clinical trial that is supposedly telling us something about a new drug or a new behaviour. Whereas in the real world, we're looking at a platform of 
millions of people who could potentially be affected mm -hmm. by this if we can all have a say as well i suppose in in an issue it can be to the greater good yeah and i think that's really important because sometimes what happens is that when you talk about some of these issues around disbelief of medical evidence um, people start to go in the direction of saying well maybe open source publications are not good and open access is not good and patient engagement is not good because people are looking up Uh, these journal articles, but they don't really know how to analyze them. And so we shouldn't have that happen. We should just let the doctors be the authorities. And I am not so comfortable with that conclusion because I think, first of all, it's already happening. People are more engaged. So that's just the reality. But also it is very good that people are engaged because Uh, the medical profession is not perfect. There's so much uncertainty. Doctors make tons of mistakes. That's a big part of the book as well. And so I think really what's more important is to help people navigate the scientific information. And like you say, there are a couple, just like with the website, how you can say there are a couple of red flags. There are red flags you can help to give people about scientific studies that they can look for, even if they can't understand the whole method section. So I think we, we need to do a better job of empowering people with some of those tools as well. What are the key red flags for scientific studies? I think it would be good if everyone had some basic understanding of what the different study designs are at a very basic level. Um, there are a lot of study designs, so but there are a couple that are, are most relevant for medical studies that come up most often. Um, and even though People won't be able to understand the, the entire, necessarily, I mean, most people can't, the entire statistical analysis. A couple of red flags would be things like um, very small sample size, like you said. Um, I, any kind of study that takes data from a different study and, and reanalyzes it, that I see that happening more than it should. That's a red flag. Like a lar large population study. Yeah, I mean, large population studies are, are not necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes you see people take someone else's study and they reanalyze the data, and then that gets published somehow. Um, that actually happens a lot in the yeah. field of longevity, where, yeah. where, which is a very difficult field to yes. study because by its very nature, it's something that happens over a long period right. of time. So many studies, and not to say that these are, are discredited, but mm -hmm. they will look at, as you say, data from many, many trials right. over several decades mm -hmm. looking at the same issue, or perhaps... They were initially looking at a different issue, but they were gathering data right. relevant to a modern day study. So it could be on how people died in the 1940s, heart disease, uh, what the symptoms were, mm. uh, what sort of lifestyle those people right. had. And I think there's, there's some benefit in that because oh, yeah. otherwise, how would we get the data? Right. So there is definitely huge benefit in that. Obviously, that's a huge part of the public health field. So, you know, it's not I'm not saying that that's a, a, a bad way of studying. But I think that it's almost like we need a table that everyone has, every single person in the world, um, of what the basic studies designs are and what you can and can't really conclude from those. Because I think often what happens is that, and it's not individual people, it's often actually scientists themselves who take it too far, who say that their study found something that it that it really didn't conclusively find because that study design couldn't really conclude that. Um, so I think it would be helpful for people to be armed with a bit more information about what those different designs are and what is and is not a legitimate claim out of those kinds of studies. I suppose we should be aware that scientists are under a tremendous amount of pressure to come up with res results that, that mean something and that, that, that have some significance. And for all, and I don't want to question the, the motives of scientists, so maybe we should, but clearly they, they need money to do, mm -hmm. to do their studies. And very often the, the money will come from commercial interests. Yes. So this is a, that's another huge issue that uh, after writing this first book 
about what is the psychology behind individual disbelief, I realized that there's another story, which is some of the institutional and structural problems that that contribute to the uh, to some of the confusion about scientific information. And one of the big issues we find is that, and this is actually going to be the topic of a new book, um, one of the issues we find is that scientists, like you said, are under increasing pressure. Um, they need funding for their studies, and, they, and their step pot is always shrinking. And the way to get attention and to get funding for these people is to make a lot out of findings that might not be uh, as big as they seem. And and it's not good to have a negative finding or to say no effect. So people shy away from those studies or they make it sound like there was an effect. And it's not necessarily, what I really want to underscore is that it's not necessarily that they're going out there with malicious intent or committing fraud, um, but that they, there are, that they are very motivated to make a, a big deal out of findings because they need to continue to get funding. And that incentive can be so strong that they might not even realize that they're inflating their findings, but they are. And that causes a lot of confusion. Another thing that occurs to me is that uh, obviously there are many, many scientific journals. Some are more prestigious or Mm -hmm. perceived as being more prestigious than others. And titles like Nature come to mind, which is uh, certainly one of the most respected around the world. And then there are others that you'll see a study and you think, well, actually, I haven't heard of that journal before. Again, it's very difficult for people, for lay people to become educated on which journals mean something or which journals are more respected than others. And it doesn't necessarily mean that if it's one of the smaller journals that you shouldn't take seriously what its authors are saying. Yes. So there are, there's a proliferation of journals. And like I said before, actually a lot of them are open access, which is something that people should be educated to understand what that is. It's not a bad thing, but they should just know how that works differently. Um, and I think one of the things that we need to teach people to do is like I said before, they need multiple pieces of information that they can put together to make a decision about how reliable this study is. So it's the study design, it's the sample size, it's a, and then it's the it's the it's the where's the money coming from, and then it's the uh, also the journal. And it's not to say that one of these things on their own will necessarily strike the whole thing down, but those are a couple of factors that you should look at. And if it comes across the board, like it's not a good journal or they're taking money from, you know, there's a conflict of interest and the study design is questionable, then you can start to see, okay, maybe there, maybe I shouldn't take this as seriously. Um, and I think one of the easy ways for people, if they want to look up a journal, they should look, they should always look up the journal and uh, all of them have impact factors, which is a number assigned to the journal about that really represents how influential the journal is in the field. Uh, it's not a perfect measure. There are still great journals that publish uh, things that are completely ridiculous. I see we see it all the time. Um, but if you really are looking for some guideposts, it's just w- another piece of information you can use to understand uh, whether this may or may not be a legitimate finding. So stepping back uh, just a little bit from your book and, and your work and looking at your own life. And on this podcast, we talk about longevity, human longevity, what it takes to to live a long and healthy life. And a lot of it is based on, on research and new research and changing your mind and changing your lifestyle sometimes to, to try to accommodate a, a goal. It might be a very long-term goal to, to get to 90 or 100 years old. So I'm curious, in, in your life, you must read the research like the rest of us with mm-hmm. your own health and uh, longevity in, in mind. Have you changed the way in which you apply the information that, that you see because of what you've done? Yeah, I think I have. So one of the things that I've become more attuned to is 
the the way the nutrition research especially and how difficult it is because of my training i have some understanding of how difficult it is to be able to tie nutrition habits to longevity claims so i i think in the past i would react a bit more like everyone else every time there was a new study about coffee i love coffee and that's one of the things i always worried oh they're going to say it's bad for me today uh, I tried, they have said yes, that, they that it's, they good, it's good and it's bad, it's good. So uh, one of the things that I try to do is in the past, I think I would react more to that. I try to re- withhold immediate reaction uh, when I see a new study about something um, and, and try to do a bit more of um, looking around, asking people, seeing what else has been written about this, and a little bit of watchful waiting, recognizing that you know a month more of drinking coffee, if I've been drinking my whole life, is probably not going to make a huge difference. Um, but you know that that I can kind of try to understand what's behind this, and not if you try to change every single time something comes out like that, then you will drive yourself crazy. And I often, my often, and I've said this before, often my conclusion is moderation in pretty much everything is, is about yes. the best way to go. Whether it's coffee or high fat or low fat or carbohydrates, I mean, clearly science evolves and we, we learn things about the minutiae of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, different things but if you stick to moderation in everything uh, and, and moderation in the good things i'm not saying moderation in smoking or moderation in not wearing right. a seat belt but moderation in, in sensible food and diet is generally a good thing right and it's funny that you mentioned those two examples smoking and seat belts because people ask me i have friends who ask me all the time what i think of a new study about this food and that food and etc and i always t- I, I it's half jokingly say the same thing Wear your seatbelt and don't smoke are the two big ones. And it's true that in public health, there are some things that have become very, very, that are just incontrovertible. Like smoking is not good for you and any amount of smoking is not good for you and you should not smoke. Um, But then there are other things where, you know, really there's a lot more uncertainty. And so um, some of it is also just trying to use common sense. Like you say, moderation is good. Moving around is definitely important. Um, exercising within reason is also very important. And eating fruits and vegetables is probably going to help you. So I think, you know, some of those things are are sticking to some of the things that are that are more uh, established and, and using some amount of common sense is and not trying not to get too caught up in every little change you see in this research is helpful. Sarah, this is a a fascinating area. Thank you very much. How can people follow you and perhaps read some of your material? Well, they can purchase a copy of my book on Amazon, Denying to the Grave, Why We Ignore the Facts That Will Save Us. Uh, They can uh, check us out at uh, critica.life. And then they can follow us also on, on Twitter at Critica underscore life as well. Sarah, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And uh, I will include those links and notes in the show notes for this episode. You can find them at our Live Long and Master Aging website. That's LamaPodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. You can also get in touch and follow what we do at Lama Podcast on Facebook and Twitter. Many thanks for listening.
FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibers that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.